and of course, just a majestic, uh, majestic fish, John. You know, uh, you know, you know, for the first time seeing a bloody big broadbill come up beside the boat and a, and a big yellowfin. It's pretty bloody exciting. So uh, I was pretty well hooked straight away, mate. This is Fishtails, a seafood podcast. I'm John Sussman. They say some individuals were born with an indescribable connection to the elements, and TK Walker, a third-generation New Zealand fisherman, embodies this timeless truth. From the moment he took his first breath, the salt water of the ocean coursed through his veins, setting the course for a destiny intertwined with the tides. Born into a legacy of fishermen, TK's roots in the fishing world run as deep as the currents themselves. But life's journey often takes unexpected turns, and TK's path diverged briefly from the waves. A spell in the building industry offered a taste of a different life, but like a magnetic pull, the ocean's allure was irresistible. The call of the open sea, the thrill of the catch, and the camaraderie of fellow fishermen, these were the siren songs that beckoned him back to his true passion. Welcome to the first episode of a great two-part series where we dive deep into the extraordinary journey of TK Walker, from journeyman fisherman to social media sensation, unravelling the remarkable evolution of his life on the waves. G'day guys, my name's uh, Tony Walker. Um, everyone calls me TK. Oh, I, I, grew up in, I grew up over here in New Zealand and uh, I come from a, a, a family of fishermen. Um, you know, I'm third generation and, and before that, um, I'm a um, uh, Maori descendant, so you know all our forefathers were uh, were in the fishing industry right back to the whaling days. Um, and if you trace <laughs> if you trace back uh, my Pakeha side, uh, we trace ourselves back to the Walkers in um, in a place called uh, Hull and uh, England, and they actually had colliers back in the day. Um, coal, coal ships, and essentially they uh, they took on a young apprentice called uh, James Cook. So uh, essentially, my forefathers taught James uh, Captain Cook how to how to navigate. <laughs> in the early days of commercial fishing in New Zealand, a period etched with the untamed spirit of exploration and resilience, the coastal waters offered both bounty and a challenge. As the vast expanse of the ocean beckoned, brave fishermen embarked on perilous voyages, embracing the unpredictable elements with unwavering determination. Endowed with a deep connection to the sea, these hardy individuals embodied the essence of toughness and resourcefulness. Battling unpredictable seas and weather, they navigated some of the roughest waters on the planet with a blend of skill and intuition. Their tales of daring and grit continue to echo through the maritime history of New Zealand testament to the spirit that laid the foundation for the rich legacy of commercial fishing in the region. Oh, well, Grandad, I didn't really know Grandad. He sort of passed away oh, when I was a young guy, but uh, he, he was based here in Whangamata, and in those days, he was he was doing cray fishing, and um, it was frozen, you know, in those days it was frozen, frozen cray tails, and I think he was getting sixpence a pound for his crays. Um, for his tails, but uh, he used to row out to his pots. We've got an island just off the coast here. Oh, you know, it's only sort of a quarter of a mile off the coast. And he used to row out to the island there and um, uh, hand haul his pots. And um, I, I heard stories from Dad that um, when when they wanted bait, they'd uh, he'd, he'd just get a half a plug of jelly and, and wait for a school of carwai or uh, trevally to to be up by gulping on gulping air on the surface, and he'd he'd throw half a plug of jelly into the bloody school of carwai, 
and and blow to school, and that was enough bait for <laughs> that was enough bait for a month. But uh, the rumour was there was a lot of one-armed crayfishmen around in those days. <laughs> TK Walker's father, a wily and resourceful fisherman of his time, emerged as a visionary who harnessed the boundless potential of the sea to expand the family's legacy. Building on the fundamental skills of a fisherman, he recognised the value of diversification and innovation. With an astute understanding of the market, he charted new waters by branching into processing, wholesaling and retailing, taking the young TK with him on the journey. From about the early 70s, he got into the fishing, and I remember oh, years ago he was uh, modifying a cray boat in those days. You just, you know, if you wanted to put six foot on the, on the back of it, you just chopped the ass off the boat and extended it at six foot and you left the prop and all the drive gear where it was. And I remember as a kid, um, me and my mates grabbing sheets of plywood and it was that bloody expensive um, uh, Fijian cowrie marine ploy and we, we were chopping it up for skateboard decks and uh, you know dad wasn't impressed <laughs> but um, yeah he, he uh, brought a trawler called the Margaret back in the early 70s and um, brought it around from Raglan around to Tauranga and started trawling out of Tauranga um, in those days they were pier trawling and uh, in the end, he, he ended up grabbing the lease on uh, a block of land right on the wharf and built a fish market. So it was called uh, a Wholesale Fish Market. And it's still going to this day. It's called Bobby's now and does fish and chips and all that sort of carry on. But um, I remember as a kid, you know, uh, Dad had the shop going there and uh, we, we'd, uh, we'd hang around there. And, um, you know, if we'd be getting into trouble, we'd be dragged into the back room where they were doing all the filleting and we'd be pin boning. Uh, and snapper all day, so um, we sort of grew up in the industry um, down in Tauranga there. For TK, a trade wasn't merely a vocational choice, but a gateway to fulfil his yearning for an endless summer. With the allure of the ocean calling his name, TK embraced the trade as a means to a greater end, a life where each day could be a sun-kissed adventure on the waves. No, I was actually a carpenter by trade, so I um, got out of school uh, at 15. The day, I, the day I turned 15, I signed my apprenticeship papers and uh, did my apprenticeship and worked, worked bloody hard. So, um, you know, I did the Saturday mornings and that sort of carry on. So I was finished by 18. I'd, I'd, I was a qualified carpenter and I bailed straight over the Gold Coast surfing. So um, early 80s, I, I shot over to the Gold Coast and just, you know, doing a bit of building work over there and um, surfing with all the lads. And then we came back to New Zealand, myself and two Aussies. Uh, we came back to New Zealand, oh, I think it was about 82, 83, and uh, I had a fair bit of money and I gave it to Dad to put in his bank to look after for me. And uh, we were, we were going to do the endless summer sort of routine, so we were going to surf around New Zealand for a bit and then um, head over to Hawaii and then carry on over to California. So uh, after, after three or four months, uh, I said to Dad, righto mate, we're, uh, we're going to bail over to Hawaii. And he said, oh, I've brought you a boat. <laughs> and, uh, I was bloody mortified. So um, I got stuck with this 25-foot bloody crappy old boat and my mates bowed over to Hawaii and um, I think one of them's still, still living in California to this day. So um, so I got stuck on this little 25-foot boat um, snap-along lining and I knew absolutely nothing about boats or anything. But Dad basically took us out for a trip and said, righto, um, these are your landmarks, you know, so we'd line up the bloody uh, a pine tree with a fence line and there were old landmarks that Granddad had passed down. 
And um, he said, right, I this is how you do it, and uh, basically left us to it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, well, I got, I got thrown in the deep end, mate. And, uh, you know, no electronics at all, nothing like that. Um, we had a compass and that was it, and I barely knew how to use that. So um, um, in, in those days, you, you navigated off your, off your lighthouses, you know. You, you knew your patterns for your lighthouses for your out after dark, and, and you made your way up and down the coast. So, um, yeah, I got thrown in the deep end, that's for sure. In the unpredictable world of fishing, good fortune often walks hand in hand between luck and unwavering persistence. It's a realm where the tides can shift unexpectedly, favouring those who possess not only the skill to seize opportunities, but also the tenacity to weather the stormy seas and unpredictability of fishing. Amidst this backdrop, TK Walker's story is enriched by the presence of a determined father, a steadfast pillar of support who ardently believed in his son's potential and drove him accordingly. Oh, it was, it was essentially just uh, me, and, me and a mate uh, to start with, and uh, it was a big bloody adventure for us, to be honest. You know, we, we still chucked the surfboards on, and um, we'd go up from Fongmatar up the coast to a place called Slipper Island, just off the coast, and uh, we had phenomenal surf, so we mixed a little bit of, uh, of business and pleasure. And um, but we, I, I sort of quickly got into it, you know, you know, being a surfer and that sort of thing, um, and just from a family heritage, um, you know, we loved love the ocean and that sort of thing. So got into it pretty quickly, and then um, I actually went and jumped on a, a mate of dad's boat, a guy called Guru, which was a local legend, and um, he was a real hard ass, and and he he taught me the ins and outs of it pretty pretty bloody quickly. And, um, and then uh, I, I flicked off the, the little boat and I ended up buying another boat, which was a Hartley Queenslander, uh, which was an old Ferro, Ferro cement hull, which uh, they used to do a lot of back in the day in, in New Zealand. Guys would build their yachts and that sort of carry on. So I jumped on that and I pretty quickly got better and better and um, expanded my horizons. You know, we'd go up to the Haraki Gulf and and do the, um, the snapper season up there and and it just sort of went from there, mate. Sort of quickly, quickly got into it, and um, and uh, fell in love with the bloody thing in the, in the end. Uh, much, much to my disgust. <laughs> and um, yeah, and then from there, basically the boats just got bigger and bigger. So I ended up um, after that, I bought a, uh, a, a an old fifty-five foot trawler off a, a, a local le legend in New Zealand, uh, Ginger Gibbs. So I bought the Vanguard off Ginger, and we converted that to long lining, and uh, carried on doing the snapper. But I was out at Mare Island one day, and uh, we were steaming around off Tahua Reef there, and I come across all these these large heads, large fish heads, and I didn't even know what species it was. So we scooped them up and had a look at them, and um, went back into Mare Island that night, and uh, he's actually a relation of ours, Willie Walker, on a boat called the Arapara. Uh, he'd come in from uh, one of the outer reefs and he'd been chasing uh, blue nose, what you guys call blue eye traveller, and um, caught up with him and had a yak to him and uh, I discovered this new fishery. So we uh, we geared up for that and uh, I learned how to do that and uh, went offshore doing the blue eye traveller and ba I've basically been offshore for the last sort of 35 years since uh, Deepwater Longlining. So... Um, after that, the boats just got bigger and bigger, and um, we we started. I started basing myself out of Towering and Auckland, and uh, chasing the blue eye traveller. So um, yeah, it was a phenomenal fishery in those days. Um, previous to that, everyone had been trot lighting for the for using rope gear, 
and uh, the monofilament had just come out. Um, I think it was uh, 3.5 mils, so it wasn't really a heavy gauge. But um, I got into it basically uh, as the monofilament came out, and uh, most of the seamounts had not really been fished hard at all. You know, there's only a few guys doing it. And then the, the local uh, or the New Zealand uh, chart agency w produced some charts uh, that had uh, really detailed offshore uh, details on the offshore seamounts, and no one had really had accurate charts until then. Um, everyone went off landmarks and radars. You know, in those days, we still had the 72-mile radars, so you, you took bearings off each island group and that put you on your seamounts. So once these charts came out, it just opened up a whole new world to us off East Cape and that sort of thing. We could clearly see the canyons and, and offshore seamounts and that sort of thing. So um, uh, we started going out to those. And, we, and it was still, um, in those days, I still didn't have uh, GPS, so... Um, we we fished a seamount off uh, Tauranga, um, and uh, we'd go off landmarks from uh, from Mare Island. So you'd steam out uh, on your bearing out towards the seamount, and uh, once you got out fairly close to it, in those days we had paper sounders, so you didn't <laughs> you didn't want to waste the paper. So we'd wait until we were fairly close to where we thought the seamount would be, and then we'd turn on our seamount and watch the watch it you know rise up. So. Once you uh, got onto uh, the seamount, you'd steam around until you found the, the most shallow part of a seamount, and you'd chuck over a um, what we used to call a hard pocket dropper, just a big dropper with a few hooks on it, with a big big balloon on the top and a big flag and a flashing light, and um, you'd start fishing. But if you lost sight of that flag, you essentially lost sight of your seamount, so you'd have to retrace yourself back to back to Mare Island. <laughs> Get on your get on your landmarks again, and get on your bearing, and go back again, and try and find your gear. So um, she was pretty hard ass in the in the early days, but uh, very successful. But we did notice in those days, you know, um, we had no idea on um, on the size of the biomass and all that sort of carry on. So we fished just a few of the seamounts, and we soon found that if you fished them um, hard, um, you basically emptied them. So we soon learnt to uh, farm our seamounts, um, you know, uh, the way we do it these days, well, the way the older skippers do it these days, is you'll work a, a circuit of seamounts. Um, so you'll you'll go to a seamount, um, you know, you might even if you have a good day, you might get two or three tonne of fish off it for the day. You only did the one day or the two days on it, and then you moved on to the next seamount. Um, and that's the problem we have these days with the younger skippers, um, they get a bit greedy, so you know they'll have a big hit on the t on the first day, and they'll just keep fishing the same shot. Um, but you, you you soon find your stuff, your seamount. It takes a while to recover, so you know the the best way, and, we, and what we try and tell the young skippers is farm the bloody hills. You know, take a little bit and move on. So yeah, that's that's basically what we did, and uh, I did that oh, right through well halfway through the second half of the eighties. I was offshore. And um, in the early 90s, the tuna fishery uh, developed over here. And um, every man and his dog basically got a boat, got anything that would float and came out chasing tuna because they knew it was going to come into, um, into quota, into individual transferable quota, ITQ. So uh, every man and his dog was out there. It was an absolute bloody nightmare, much the same as you guys had over in Australia. I think we had something like 130 boats out there and um, I was out there on the seamounts trying to uh, catch my blue eye, 
and uh, and Harpaker and Bass, and uh, we had all these gear, all these guys shooting gear all over the top of us. So it was an absolute bloody nightmare. But uh, there was myself and another chap, uh, Peter Sheaf, uh, from Fokatani. Um, we just had no respect at all for the surface longliners. You know, they're all blowing cowboys as far as we were concerned. And uh, we just stayed doing the bottom longlining, uh, the, the, yeah, the demersal fishery. And uh, for right through the whole 90s, John, we, we basically had the whole fishery to ourselves and it was glorious. You know, we, we went up to the top of the North Island, up around the Three Kings and fished up around there and had it to ourselves. And um, a lot of the seamounts we were fishing were virgin seamounts, you know, they'd never really been fished. So uh, we had phenomenal catches and went down the west coast of the North Island, New Zealand, doing the same thing. And um, it, was, it was really magic days. You know, we, we were filling the boat up in um, two days. You know, my boats were getting bigger and bigger. And um, we were filling up the boats in two or three days and coming in. So, um, yeah, she was good times, John, really good times. TK Walker immersed himself in the world of one of the globe's most coveted and intricately orchestrated fisheries, the tuna industry. TK entered a realm that demanded not only his well-honed skills as a seasoned fisherman, but also a profound comprehension of the multifaceted dynamics that govern these awe-inspiring wild fish. TK became an essential thread in the narrative of an industry renowned for its finesse, economic gravitas, and the inherent trials that accompany the pursuit of such a valuable and highly sought after fish. Well, I, I bought a boat off Sanford's called Red Bluff. It was actually an old um, Australian prawn trawler, 22 metre prawn trawler. So I brought that off um, off Sanford's and it was originally set up by um, a, a crowd called Saminovich Fisheries over here. And it actually had the, uh, the Turner Longline gear on board. Um, and it was beautiful gear. It was the uh, the American Lidgren Pittman gear, absolutely beautiful gear. Um, and by that stage, I'd started to get into uh, automatic longlining, you know, using the Mustard um, system. So I brought I brought this boat and had it all on. And I said, oh, I'm going to cut all that shit off and get rid of it. And a mate of mine, Corey, said, oh, no, 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 mate, you never know. <laughs> you know, you might uh, you might enjoy it. So I, le I left it on there and, and set up a, a 15,000 hook uh, auto line system on the boat and continue, you know, chasing the pink ling and the uh, the blue eye travel and that sort of carry on. And then I was out off uh, the poor nights um, on the east coast of the North Island there one day and we'd been fishing and it was flat ass calm and I was looking at this gear and I sort of had a look around, you know, because everyone knew that I'd sort of poured, poured scorn on the, um, on the tuna boys and that sort of stuff and had no respect for it. And I had a look around and no one was around. I thought, oh, I might just have a little play with this, this carry on. And I had um, I had a, a, hook for, a bin full of hooks down in the ice hole that had been down there the whole time, and uh, but didn't have any beacons or any floats. Uh, but I had a whole lot of twenty liter um, plastic oil containers and that sort of carry on. So I uh, I, I chucked chucked the flag over and, and run out about five miles of line, and um, back in my days I caught a couple of big sorties and a couple of yellowfin and a couple of big eyes. So. <laughs> That was me, mate. I was hooked. <laughs> you know, because, I mean, that's why I switched essentially from uh, doing the snapper to the uh, to the blue eye and the, and the puka. You know, it was, it was, I've always been a numbers guy. So, um, you know, I'm thinking, uh, you know, with the snapper, you know, you're getting um, for every 100 hooks, you're getting a bit of snapper type of thing. Well, I thought, well, if you're doing the uh, puka and blue nose, the fish are a lot bloody bigger, so it doesn't take as many fish to catch a, a, a ton of fish. And um, the same thing applied to uh, 
to the tuna long line. You know, I caught that sorty and um, and uh, the big guy in yellowfin, and I was looking at the size of thinking, bloody hell, you know, you're only going to need 10 of these to get a tonne. So um, and of course, just a majestic, uh, the majestic fish, John. You know, uh, you know, uh, for the first time seeing a bloody big broadbill come up beside the boat and a, and a big yellowfin. It's pretty bloody exciting. So uh, I was pretty well hooked straight away, mate. As TK Walker's fishing skills gained recognition and his opportunities multiplied, the inevitability of moving to Australia became apparent. His expertise and dedication attracted attention within the industry opening doors to new horizons. I got the shit sort of, uh, well, basically with the fishing companies in the end, and uh, I went outside the line, I was fishing in international waters on what's called a high seas permit, so I was out at the Wanganellas and uh, a few of the northern seamounts for about five years, just uh, fishing outside the line. Um, and what I was doing was basically going through a, a broker, and uh, he was just clipping me a straight 5% off the top, and, um, you know, it was provided me with the uh, with the documents from uh, uh, Sydney Fish Market and all that sort of thing, so it was all nice and transparent. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I was thinking, you know, because I was just proving a point, really. Um, you know, stuff you New Zealand fishing companies, <laughs> you know, you're too bloody greedy. But at the end of the day, I was steaming 300 bloody miles every every trip just to go outside the line, and it was, you know, um, just because of my pride, really. So um, I uh, basically sold my last boat to Jay Catherine and. You know, it just became a hired gun fishing for other guys. And then um, a couple of years, uh, well, just before coming over to uh, Australia, I had a, had the total shits with the whole industry and um, I went charter fishing for a crowd called Cascade Charters in Fokatani. And uh, that was really enjoyable. Yeah, really enjoyed that. Um, the boat I was running was an old uh, an old Australian Randall. It was actually a, um, it used to be a police boat. Uh, it was called Tracker 2. And it was originally, I think, a New South Wales police boat, and it even still had the frame. You could see where the cells were up the front. <laughs> well, they must have, must have been arresting a drunken fisherman or whatever. So, um, so I ran that, and um, we, we'd get bookings, and we were fishing uh, White, White Island, which has got um, absolutely incredible yellowtail kingfish fishing, and, and of course your, your bass and bass and blue nose and that sort of thing. And we'd also fish uh, the legendary East Cape. Um, and uh, yeah, for the for the bass and kingies, and we'd get the odd uh, blue and striped marlin, and um, every season we'd go up to the three kings, which was uh, uh, every recreational fisherman's fantasy to go up there and catch the monster fish up there. So uh, you'd get parties, and they were mainly most of them were tradies, you know, just young guys. Uh, they'd save up for the year, and uh, we'd take out five five guys at a time. And uh, take them out for uh, they were normally five day trips. Um, so we take them out and just put them onto fish. You know, work hard and uh, put them onto the fish of their lives. And uh, it was bloody good. But uh, you know, after after so many years in the um, in the commercial industry, my people skills aren't that flash and still aren't to this day. So <laughs> I have a I have a low tolerance for uh, for dickheads, shall we say? So, <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm not really a people person, John, and uh, and still aren't. So, <laughs> but I'm learning. I'm trying. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, it was great. But essentially, um, not enough work. Even though we were one of the, we were one of the busiest charter boats in New Zealand, uh, you've got to remember just about every trade in New Zealand's got his own little runabout. You know, a little trailer boat, um, and they're bloody good trailer boats. You know, they can go well offshore. So. Um, at the end of the day, yeah, most of the traders got their own boats. 
and uh, they were just uh, jumping on board with us to go out and you know for the big adventures. So uh, there wasn't really enough work for me, John. So I thought, oh well, I'll, I actually saw an advert um, for a position over in Australia, and I thought, oh well, I'll apply for that, and that'll be my last bloody hurrah um, as a commercial fisherman. And uh, came over to Australia to work for this company, and uh, and thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, it was a new experience for me fishing up in the Coral Sea, um, fishing in board shorts and and singlets. Um, it was a, it was a real treat for me, and um, I liked the challenge, John. You know, it was a whole new fishery. Um, you know, same same basically the same um, style of fishing as we do at home, um, slightly different ratios, but. Uh, but yeah, it was just just nice to be going up into the Coral Sea and out towards Lord Howe and, and um, enjoying a new fishery. And um, when I got over here, um, great bunch of guys. I was up in Malula Bar, and um, all the other fishers were very welcoming. And um, yeah, I had an absolute blast. Slightly different species, you know, or, or slightly different habits. Um, you know, uh, even the sorties, it's sort of different bite times and different habits and different depths, but it's just a matter of um, fine-tuning your ratios on, on you know, your, your gaps between your hooks and the gaps between the floats and that sort of carry on and and uh, and that sort of thing. But it was really much the same, um, but, you know, there were some species I'd never caught before, so, um, you know, the wahoo and that sort of carry on. So uh, it was just a new challenge for me, John, you know, and that was the thing I like as is, 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 is new challenges, especially at my age, you know, I'm... I'm uh, I'm 60 now, still sort of fighting fit, but um, uh, I sort of there's a few more adventures I want to do before I uh, hang my gun boots up. That's for sure. TK Walker's life journey took him from the early days of commercial fishing in New Zealand, where he honed his skills as a third generation fisherman, to Australia's expansive maritime landscape, where his expertise and dedication has earned him respect as one of the region's most esteemed fishers. However, TK's story doesn't end with his fishing accomplishments alone. In a seamless fusion of tradition and modernity, TK embraced social media, becoming a compelling storyteller on digital platforms. His authenticity, coupled with a profound reverence for the ocean, transformed him into a social media sensation, where his captivating tales of life on the waves resonated with a global audience. In the second part of this series, we'll explore TK's evolution as a skilled fisherman, but also we'll delve into his role as a charismatic social media star, offering a holistic view of a life intertwined with the relentless rhythms of the sea and the boundless possibilities of the digital age for storytelling. This is Fish Tales, a seafood podcast. A Deep in the Weeds production, I'm John Sussman. Follow us on Instagram at Fishtails Seafood Podcast or email us at fishtailspodcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay tuned for more tales from beneath the surface of the seafood world every Friday on your podcast app.